Cognitive testing is a key part of diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, or AD. It's frequently used, non-invasive, and cost-effective, and yet many questions remain regarding the association between poor cognitive test performance, the diagnosis and progression of AD, and neuropathological changes. Today's episode on papers published in September 2020 covers studies that validate and compare existing tests, refine them for specific applications, and correlate cognition with imaging results. We'll get started right after the intro, and in case my voice is not familiar, this is Nyla speaking. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. We have 19 papers to go through today, and I've divided these into roughly five sub-themes. The first is cognition and imaging, so this is positron emission tomography and magnetic resonance imaging. The second is on papers that validate or refine existing tests. Then we've got some papers on spatial memory and facial recognition tests, Uh, We also have some on adapting tests to specific populations and a few on new tools for diagnosing or for testing cognition. Okay, that's enough preamble, so let's get started with cognition and imaging. Paper number one actually uses both PET imaging and MRI, and this paper is entitled What Determines Cognitive Functioning in the Oldest Old? The EMIF-AD90 Plus Study. The first author on this paper is Legder, or maybe Legder, and the last author is Visset, and there are a number of authors in between those two names. It was published in the Journal of Gerontology, Series B, Psychological Sciences and Social Sciences, and that's all the information I need to give you. So just as a reminder before I get started, you can always track the papers in the bibliography associated with the episode. All right, so Legder and colleagues examined the risk and protective factors and their impact on brain pathology biomarkers. So specifically, the risk and protective factors they looked at were cognitive activity, physical parameters, nutritional status, inflammatory markers, and cardiovascular risk factors. And the biomarkers they looked at were white matter hyperintensities and hippocampal volume using MRI an amyloid binding measured with PET. So all of this was used to determine the role these factors play in people over 90 years old and the subsequent cognitive effects they may experience. Decreases in hand grip strength, short physical performance battery, nutritional status, HbA1c, which is essentially a measure for blood glucose levels, and hippocampal volume were all associated with greater cognitive decline. On the other hand, increases in white matter hyperintensity and amyloid binding were also associated with greater cognitive decline. The authors outline a couple other associations, including lower body mass index with increased amyloid binding, and I suggest that you check out the paper for further details. The various associations found in this paper give us some ideas of which domains can be areas of intervention to prevent cognitive decline as people age. 
Paper number two is also using PET imaging to look at the relationship between cognition and amyloid burden, but this one focuses specifically on episodic memory. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Squarsoni and last author Kutinho, and the title is Relationship Between Pet-Assessed Amyloid Burden and Visual and Verbal Episodic Memory Performance in Elderly Subjects. Quazzoni et al. aimed to correlate the degree of AD severity to the amyloid beta biomarker as measured through PET imaging. Three groups of patients were compared in the study, those with mild dementia, those with mild cognitive impairment, and those without cognitive impairment. All participants underwent specialized PET imaging to detect amyloid beta aggregation, as well as cognitive performance tests. The authors found that those who were cognitively impaired at baseline and had amyloid beta seen on PET performed worse than those who were not cognitively impaired with or without amyloid beta seen on PET. Paper number three uses magnetic resonance imaging, and the authors of this paper wanted to see whether they could accurately predict when memory lapses are actually early indicators of cognitive decline. It was published in Research and Therapy by first author Wiern and last author Coutard, and the title is Accelerated Long-Term Forgetting in Healthy Older Adults Predicts Cognitive Decline Over One Year. This study examined delayed memory recall in 46 cognitively healthy older adults. Memory was tested at 30 minutes, the reported standard for detecting abnormal episodic memory, and at four weeks after the fact. The study participants also underwent cognitive testing on the Addenbrooke's cognitive exam twice, at the beginning of the study and again 12 months later. All subjects also had a high-resolution pre-Tesla MRI to measure medial temporal lobe area volumes. The authors found that roughly one-third of the participants showed decline on the Addenbrooke cognitive exam test after one year. The best predictor of cognitive decline? It was the performance on the four-week delayed recall test. When combined with MRI measures of the hippocampal volume, the four-week verbal recall results could identify those at risk of cognitive decline with a 93% sensitivity and 86% specificity. Let's move into some studies on validating and refining existing tests. I have six papers that I've sorted into this category. They either validate previous tests, add to them, or compare different measures to see which are the most accurate and useful. So paper number four is entitled Validating One-Year Reliable Change Methods. The first author is Hammers and the last author is Duff, and it was published in the Archives of Clinical Neuropsychology. The authors worked to study the validity of the already published one-year SRB differential equations by Duff and colleagues, which was published in 2010 and is a cognitive assessment tool. This was conducted on 70 community-dwelling elderly individuals with either normal cognition or mild cognitive impairment, both at one week and at one year after the baseline readings. Results from this study showed that there was no change in performance between observed baseline and observed one-year follow-up scores, or between observed one-year and predicted one-year scores. However, the study did confirm Duff et al.'s equations to accurately predict one-year performance of cognitive measures to that which was observed in the follow-up. Thus, these equations are helpful for clinicians while assessing patients for cognitive impairment. 
Paper number five is by the same research group. So this time the first author is Duff and the last author is Dixon. It was published in Clinical Neuropsychology and paper number five is entitled Recognition Subtests for the Repeatable Battery for the Assessment of Neuropsychological Status, Preliminary Data in Cognitively Intact Older Adults, Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment, and Alzheimer's Disease. So the repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status is going to be abbreviated to R-bands. R-bands is a battery of cognitive tests that evaluates domains including immediate and delayed recall, or memory, rather. In this study, the authors added two new subtests, story recognition and figure recognition, and they tested this in older adults who had mild cognitive impairment or mild AD. In this cross-sectional sample, it was hypothesized that individuals with MCI, so that's mild cognitive impairment, would perform worse than their cognitively intact peers, but better than individuals with AD on these clinically relevant recognition scores. The results are preliminary, but it seems that adding these two sets helped to refine the sensitivity of the R-bands in classifying cortical and subcortical profiles of cognitive impairments. Next up is paper number six, which was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by Devon and last author Schmand. And the title is An Operational Definition of Abnormal Cognition to Optimize the Prediction of Progression to Dementia. What are optimal cutoff points for univariate and multivariate normative comparisons? Okay, so that gives you an idea of what this paper is about. Uh, so Devon and colleagues conducted the study with the aim of improving the criteria used to define abnormal cognition. Usually in neuropsychological test results, abnormal cognition is seen as having either 1, 2, or 3 abnormal scores out of 10, as long as the magnitude of the score deviations is adjusted accordingly. Okay, so what does that mean? Essentially, when only one abnormal score is needed, the magnitude needs to be accounted for. In other words, the test score deviation or change needs to be larger than when you have two or three abnormal test scores. Overall, even when the patient is classified as mild cognitive impairment, having multiple variables in the analysis helps to better determine the patient's progression to later stages of dementia. Next, we have two papers that look at subjective cognitive decline. So paper number seven was published in the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association. The first author is Jia and the last author is Kao. And the title is Subjective Cognitive Decline, Cognitive Reserve Indicators, and the Incidence of Dementia. This was a longitudinal prospective study to evaluate the association among subjective cognitive decline cognitive reserve, and dementia risk using longitudinal data from the Cognitive Function and Aging Study Wales Test. This study was from data of 2,099 individuals aged 65 and older. Combination of education and early life, occupational complexity in middle life, and cognitive activity in late life composed the Cognitive Reserve Score. The authors firstly found that those with subjective cognitive decline were more likely to develop dementia than those without subjective cognitive decline. It was also revealed from the study that cognitive reserve over the lifespan reduced the incident dementia risk in a dose-response manner. 
Paper number eight is also on subjective cognitive decline, but this one examines how a patient's self-assessed cognitive decline compares to the assessment from an informant. It was published in Geriatric Nursing by first author Denny and last author Logalbo, and the title of paper number eight is 88 Patient Informant Discrepancy Predicts Insight and Cognitive Impairment in Alzheimer's Disease. The eight-item informant interview to differentiate aging and dementia, or AD8, is a questionnaire that is completed by an informant to assess a patient's cognitive functioning and is used to detect early AD. This study was conducted among 540 patients with a mean age of around 81 years old to evaluate how much insight people with AD have of their cognitive impairment. It was found that informant AD8s inversely correlated with patient Montreal Cognitive Assessment or MOCA scores, meaning that informant ratings accurately reflected global cognitive functioning. Greater discrepancy between the informant's and patient's AD8 score was correlated with lower MOCA scores, meaning that those with greater cognitive decline or greater cognitive impairment have poorer insight. This study suggests that using informant AD8 in combination with patient AD8 gives a discrepancy measure which can help ascertain the degree of cognitive decline and the patient's insight into their condition. Paper number 9 is the last one in this section, and it draws another comparison to refine existing cognitive assessments. It was published by first author Graves and last author Bondi in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, And the title is Evidence for the Utility of Actuarial Neuropsychological Criteria Across the Continuum of Normal Aging, Mild Cognitive Impairment, and Dementia. Graves and colleagues sought to compare actuarial neuropsychological criteria for MCI against the current consensus criteria as used by the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center for Diagnostic Accuracy. Actuarial criteria derive from statistical analyses rather than expert opinion. The study found that the actuarial methods identified MCI in up to a third of individuals who were diagnosed as cognitively normal and in a fifth of individuals with dementia based on consensus criteria. The authors also identified discrepancies between actuarial and consensus criteria for the diagnosis of MCI. All right, we're at our halfway mark. A reminder that you can find all of the papers we mention in the bibliography associated with this episode. And with that, let's take a little break. You can mark down the papers you liked, and I'll be back in a couple minutes. Hey, listeners. I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And we're back for the next section, which is spatial and facial tests. Uh, It has four papers in it. I know this is a very arbitrary distinction, but I had a hard time finding sub-themes for this episode. So the next four tests look at either spatial memory or facial recognition tests. Let's start with paper number 10. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine by first author Umagaki and last author Kuzuya, and the title is Association of the Qualitative Clock Drawing Test with Progression to Dementia in Non-Demented Older Adults. 
And so, you know, the clock drawing test is one of the classic tests used to screen for dementia or Alzheimer's disease. In this study, the authors evaluated cognitive decline in 163 non-demented individuals who were visiting a memory clinic. They used scores on the qualitative clock drawing test in combination with the mini mental state examination, or the MMSE, uh, for the assessment. It was revealed that low scores on the clock drawing test using Khan et al.'s scoring system was associated with progression to dementia at one year after the study in non-demented participants, which occurred in 26 cases. This was unrelated to the MMSE score and suggests that the clock drawing test is a good indicator of progression to dementia. Next is paper number 11, which was published in PLOS One. The first author is Kulin or Kowlin, and the last author is Hornberger, and the title is Test-Retest Reliability of Spatial Navigation in Adults at Risk of Alzheimer's Disease. Test-Retest Reliability was analyzed in participants who were reassessed for spatial navigation 18 months after their first test. The Visual Supermarket Task, or VST, and the Sea Hero Quest are two spatial navigation tests that are sensitive for preclinical AD. It was found that the supermarket task test-retest correlation coefficients showed the highest test-retest reliability, followed by those of the Sea Hero Quest. The authors also divided participants into low genetic risk versus high genetic risk groups for AD to see whether that made a difference, and you can check the abstract to see what parameters were differentially affected. The study was only conducted on 59 individuals, so further research in a larger sample would be advised to ensure quality metrics for this cognitive measure. But I have to say, see Hero Quest sounds really fun. Okay, next we have a paper that compares the performance on spatial memory tasks between individuals with AD and different types of aphasia. It was published in Cortex by first author Fox and last author Piguet, and the title is Visual Spatial, Short-Term, and Working Memory Disturbance in the Primary Progressive Aphasias, Neuroanatomical and Clinical Implications, and this is paper number 12. Primary progressive aphasia, or PPA, is composed of three types. There's logopenic, non-fluent, and semantic variant. In fact, logopenic aphasia, which is characterized by an impairment in naming and sentence repetition, might often be caused by an atypical form of AD. Fox and colleagues compared short-term and working memory profiles of primary progressive aphasia and AD, focusing on the visual-spatial domain, and investigated their neural correlates. All participants in the study underwent the WMS3 spatial and digit span tasks and had structural brain MRI for analyses. So actually, I probably should have put this paper in the MRI and PET imaging section, but too late. You can check the abstract for the different findings in each form of aphasia. I'm going to focus on the ones on AD, and what they found is that there was impairment both in the spatial span forward and the digit span forward tasks. The neuroimaging revealed that the gray matter loss in temporoparieto-occipital regions was most severe in AD and logopenic aphasia groups. Switching gears a little, let's end this section with a paper on facial recognition. 
Paper number 13 is entitled Famous Faces Naming Test Predicts Conversion from Mild Cognitive Impairment to Alzheimer's Disease. The first author on this paper is Garcia and the last author is Martinez and it was published in Acta Neurologica Belgium. Actually, I just checked it's Belgica, which I should have guessed based on the other two words. I just had the abbreviated Belge in my notes. Okay, anyways... In this study, the authors administered the famous faces naming test, which is a measure of remote semantic memory, on elderly patients with MCI to see whether it could predict conversion to AD. And so, you know, it's called the famous faces naming test. I'm not saying that the faces naming test is famous. Moving on, it was found that MCI patients who went on to develop AD two years later performed worse on the test than those who did not convert to AD. This suggests that this neuropsychological test, which examines semantic knowledge, could be a useful diagnostic tool for early AD. However, further research needs to be conducted, as the sample size was only 25 participants. And I'm pretty curious which faces are included in the famous faces naming test, because I grew up without a TV, so I don't know a lot of famous faces, and I wonder how, like, generation and culturally and whatever else appropriate it is. I'm sure there's lots of data on that, too. That brings us to our next section, which is on specific populations. That's very fitting. So how certain tests have been adapted to specific contexts. And paper number 14 is a great transition from the last one, as it adapts a facial recognition test to a Spanish-speaking population. It was published by first author Villa Castellar and last author Quijos in the journal Alzheimer's Research and Therapy, and the title is The Latin American Spanish Version of the Face Name Associative Memory Exam is Sensitive to Cognitive and Pathological Changes in Preclinical Autosomal Dominant Alzheimer's Disease. The Face Name Associative Memory Exam, or F-Name, is an associative memory test used to track changes along the AD spectrum. In this study, authors explored whether the Latin American Spanish version of this test could differentiate between cognitively intact Spanish-speaking individuals who were carriers of the pathogenic presenilin-1 mutation versus those who were not. In addition, PET imaging was conducted to assess a relationship among performance on the task and amyloid beta, or tau accumulation, in a subset of participants. Results from the study highlighted that the Spanish version of FNAME is sensitive to AD clinical and pathological markers and can help track disease development in this specific population. Paper number 15 addresses the need to develop cognitive tests that take into consideration the level of education of the subject, as this can be a significant confounding variable. The title is Diagnostic Accuracy of Usual Cognitive Screening Tests versus Appropriate Tests for Lower Education to Identify Alzheimer's Disease. It was published in the Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry and Neurology by first author Ortega and last author Yasuda. As I already mentioned, Ortega and colleagues wanted to compare the accuracy of conventional screening tests to those that are hypothesized to be more suitable for individuals with lesser education. Study participants recruited from the geriatric clinic composed four groups, literate control, illiterate control, literal AD, and, or rather, literate AD, and illiterate AD. 
The participants completed a battery of tests, and you can check the details in the abstract, but it included the clock drawing test, it included verbal fluency for animals and grocery lists, and different spatial tests as well. The authors did not find a difference in mean scores among literate versus illiterate controls for memory, clock reading, and verbal fluency tests. Between control and AD groups, there was a significant mean score difference for more tests depending on literacy, but that did not end up affecting the diagnostic accuracy of the tests for AD. So it seems that literacy does influence uh, the test scores, but not enough to make a diagnostic difference. Last in the section is paper number 16. This one examines the transition from Down syndrome to prodromal stages of AD. So persons with Down syndrome may have difficulties with learning, language, and memory due to the extra 21 chromosome, which affects neurodevelopment, and they are at increased risk of developing AD in middle age. That's because the extra chromosome carries the amyloid precursor protein gene. So let's learn more with paper number 16, which is entitled Cognitive Indicators of Transition to Preclinical and Prodromal Stages of Alzheimer's Disease in Down Syndrome. The first author is Hartley, and the last author is Christian, and it was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. How does one distinguish baseline cognitive symptoms from early decline that may herald the onset of AD in this vulnerable population? Hartley et al. followed 118 non-demented adults with Down syndrome over time, testing episodic memory, visual attention, executive functioning, motor planning, and coordination. The cued recall test emerged as a promising indicator of transition from preclinical to prodromal AD, which the authors determined using specialized A-beta PET neuroimaging. Okay, that brings us to our very last section. I have three papers left, and these introduce new tools for cognitive assessment. Paper number 17 examines whether a virtual game could help detect mild cognitive impairment in older adults. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Zyguris, and the last author is Tsolaki. And paper number 17 is entitled Detection of Mild Cognitive Impairment in At-Risk Group of Older Adults. Can a novel self-administered serious game-based screening test improve diagnostic accuracy? Zyguris et al. evaluate a serious game-based test called the Virtual Supermarket Test. Oh, we've heard that one before. In comparison to the standard screening tests for mild cognitive impairment, which are the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA, and the Mini Mental State Examination, or MMSE. Those should all be familiar to you by now. These tests, along with a neuropsychological battery, were administered to a group of healthy older adults with subjective memory complaints and a group of individuals diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. The serious virtual game was able to correctly differentiate between mild cognitive impairment in healthy adults at a rate of 81.91%. This rate appeared to outperform the MOCA and MMSE. I really like the title of paper number 18, which is Telltale Silence. Temporal speech parameters discriminate between prodromal dementia and mild Alzheimer's disease. It was published by Vince first author, and Kalman, last author, in Clinical Linguistics and Phonetics. 
So this group from Hungary used linguistic measures to help identify healthy controls from patients with MCI or mild AD in a small cohort study. The patients performed various speech tasks to stimulate different aspects of memory, and the speech recordings were analyzed by a specialized linguistic software called PRAT. Based on speech rate and the pattern of pauses, researchers were able to predict healthy controls from patients with mild cognitive impairment and found that speech declines and pauses grow as dementia progresses. The authors proposed that speech analysis may be an effective tool for dementia screening. The last paper is a little left field for this episode, as it's not really looking at a diagnostic tool. Rather, the authors report on a novel cognitive outcome measure to assess the therapeutic effects of exercise interventions on MCI. Paper number 19 was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. The first author is Jacobs, the last author is Baker, and this was a collaborative project also with the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study EXERT study group and the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. The authors developed a novel composite score called the ADAS COG EXEC, which combines cognitive tests previously shown to have sensitivity in detecting both long term changes in mild cognitive impairment and the effects of exercise. Having passed a series of validity measures, the novel composite score will be used as the primary outcome for the EXERT trial, which is a phase three clinical trial specifically looking at exercise and mild cognitive impairment. So I will probably be covering that paper that comes out of that study in the future. Um, you can check out our non-pharmacological treatment episodes if you're interested in things like exercise interventions. Okay, congratulations. You made it through 19 papers in, I think, under an hour. Um, hopefully you learned something useful and hopefully this episode was accessible. With that, I would like to thank the team that worked on this episode. We have a very large team at Aminder, but specifically the sorting was done by Ellen Rowe and Ja, and the summaries were done by V and Catherine. This episode was edited by Sarah and was checked over by Anusha. Anusha also does the music for our podcast. You can check her out on SoundCloud or at AK Music on YouTube. Sarah did the word cloud for this episode and Tarini did the bibliography. So as I said, we have a big team. We are always looking for more people to join because it's a lot of work. If you're interested, you can email us with your CV and a quick note about why or what you would like to do in Aminder. And if you have feedback for us, you can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or of course, you can also email us. I'll be back soon to cover some papers from January 2021. Until then, I wish you happy researching and whatever else you're doing with your days. Bye.